Hey folks, it's your boy Dan White Hodge here to tell you about a great event coming up here in July. I've partnered up with the Wild Goose Festival and with the great Dr. Robin Espinosa to bring you a great event called Justice Camp. This year's Justice Camp seeks to privilege voices that are historically marginalized by bringing together the African-American and Latinx voices of faith organizers and leaders. Bringing these voices together not only helps enliven faith with action, but also bridges together these two communities in critical ways by helping to tell the story of struggle and justice through several lenses. Dr. Espinosa and I will be doing some great teaching along with some amazing other voices on Thursday, July 12th from 9 to 5. That's Thursday, July 12th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And guess what, y'all? It's only $59. Oh, man, $59. Yo, y'all got to get on this. Go on today to the wildgoosefestival.org and look up Justice Camp 18, okay? That's wildgoosefestival.org, Justice Camp 18. I'll also place these links in this week's episode's show notes. So get ready. It's fitting to be on, y'all. Be there. Things are going to get worse before they get better. Got down on his knees and gave his life to Christ. Because Americans are dreamers too. You're not in any moral position to tell anybody how corrupt they are. You should be quiet. Why? Why are our black sons and daughters being treated so badly? This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, your boy, Daniel White Hodge. Hey, y'all. How you doing out there in podcast land? Y'all know where I'm at? <laughs> I'm actually in my car right now. <laughs> I'm recording this. People looking at me all crazy and joint. Um... <laughs> So I apologize if the audio quality is not the same on par when I'm down in White Hodge Studios in the lab. Um, so I ex excuse me on that. But, uh, you know, brother trying to uh, get a couple things done and uh, finishing up some writing projects. And I figured, you know what, let me go on, record this, get this thing out of the way and, um, you know, hook it up. Um, but at any rate, it's always fun, man. I'm out here. It's funny because I am actually out in the suburbs of Chicago. Uh, my daughter loves riding horses, and we're out in countryside. And, man, it's uh, it's a trip. I ain't going to front, y'all. I hate going to the suburbs. Hate it, hate it, hate it. Um, it's, it is just it is a white environment. It is an environment that uh, feels hostile uh, to really anything black and it's an environment that i have found to be um suspicious of folks that look like me um it's where i see the most you know blue lives matter um you know american flags you know nascar this nra that so i don't know i just yeah i don't it's those are not things that i that that represent one who i am and number two um they have a history of being against me when i see an american flag when i see a white person driving you know a gmc you know big truck or whatever and that's not to say everybody i'm not trying to necessarily just cast it but i'm just trying to let you know coming from a, like a, a james baldwin perspective it's like these are the tropes these are the things that have 
produced harm. This isn't just some kind of GOP, all oh, the immigrants are taking our jobs when you have no proof. Now, this stuff has really happened. People who drive those vehicles have a certain worldview. Um, at least here in the suburbs, you know, when I see the American flag or the, you know, the blue stripe with the the, you know, the American flag, you know, talking about blue lives matter, all that stuff, you know, that's an ideology, and that's an ideology that is hostile to me, uh, and so I do, I, you know, I'm I am not one to, um, yeah, I'm not one to want to engage with that so far. As crazy as things are right now, I always think as a black man, is this the moment that you know some white person's going to be afraid? to grab their stuff and call the cops on me um and so i'm yeah i those are just things that i always get i love my daughter i will continue to support her here uh in her doing her um her horse riding she loves horses and that's her thing you know we tried hockey basketball soccer tennis uh although she likes tennis but she just she's not as passionate about it as she is um uh, you know, um, the horses and like, you know, she saw the Olympics and was like, I want to do that. And I was like, I don't know where you're getting the money, but you know, she's doing her thing, man. This generation's entrepreneurial. She started a, a pet sitting business and she's got clients. She's got business cars. She's got the whole nine going and everything, man. So 11 years old, actually she's had it for like the last two years. So she had it since she was nine, a nine year old. Right. I mean, and you know, she's, we teach her to save and all that stuff. So I'm going to continue to support that. I'm going to continue to uh, encourage that. And I'm going to continue to um, work with her on that. So if it means me having to come out to the suburbs, that's cool. Uh, at the same time, I also realize sometimes, you know, as some folks would say, people of color would say, you know, it's like you're taking your life into your own hands and stuff, man. And that, that really is the truth. <laughs> This <laughs> is uh, so hopefully and I try to lay low. I try to lay, you know, a little low on all this stuff. But, you know, uh, I'm still black. And so that's a big sounding card when I run around here. So I always look around and see, you know, like right now I see a dude, you know, look like a Latinx brother, you know, you know, walking past me. So I'm like, I, right, you know, I'm with that. <laughs> Um, but seriously, man, you know, uh, Beverly Tatum writes a great book. You know, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria? You know, they think of cultural and racial identity is big. You know, when I walk into an all-white environment, you know, I notice. I notice quickly. And it's always funny to me when white people say, man, I, I was the only white person. I'm like, yeah, you know, welcome to my life. I'm usually the only person of color or of a few, you know, because, you know, tend to, and then, you know, it's like Richard Pryor said, you know, it's like white folks aren't comfortable around, you know, black folks. You know, white folks are really uncomfortable around people of color. So... You know, and especially in the socio-political era, when when the when that type of ideology has been given uh, credence and permission to act any old way, um, it's it you know it's not surprising to me. So here we are, <laughs> another week. Uh, the other thing I wanted to bring up to uh, well, first and foremost, of course, welcome all you new listeners. Uh, if you're listening to this first time, thank you so much. Profane Faith Weekly Podcast. Uh, we're now in the summer here of 2018. I'm excited because it's warm. Um, although I got the air conditioner off because it's, it's too much background noise, and so I'm, I'm I'm a little burning up. But it's worth it. It's worth it all for the love of the podcast. Um, yeah, this week uh, I've got on a great guest, Suan Shah. Let me get, I'm going to get to her bio and info in a minute because the conversation we had, y'all, is off the chain. It's it's great, and I, I you know I don't want to take up too much time yabbering here, but I do want to give you a highlight on a couple things that I'm working on. One, I'm putting together a special issue on the Mystic Soul Conference that happened back in January. Uh, I was able to interview a lot of folks, do some live podcasting there, um, and I've just been uh, I well I've just needed the time to actually edit it and get it down and make it sound really good. So I'm hoping to get that 
that out here in the next couple weeks. Um, it's, uh, you know, the Mystic Soul Conference was really a conference that starts a discussion with, uh, you know, decentering whiteness and creating a space for ethnic minorities, led by ethnic minorities, with a focus on ethnic minorities, you know. Um, and it was really the first conference that I think I attended that, that where I didn't see white people running everything, you know, and, and, and only with a few, uh, you know, ethnic minorities there. And that's powerful, y'all, especially in the in the in this day and age, in this realm of religion and the realm of of understanding, um, you know, what does faith look like when you're an ethnic minority outside of a colonized white evangelical perspective? Man, oh man, I so. It was good. It was really good. I hope to see more of that. And so I wanted to put a special issue together on that. And so you'll hear, you'll hear some multiple voices uh, on that. And so, um, you know, I wanted to, you know, get that out to you guys. Because, again, I think that it's something that is important uh, in this day and age. And we're starting to see more of that. So let's go for it, right? Let's hit it. Let's hit it. Let's hit it. The next thing I wanted to bring up and put you guys radar, um, are a couple of hashtags that are making the rounds. Um, and, and, and uh, a big one is on my alma mater. Um, my, I'm an alumni at Fuller Theological Seminary. Uh, one of them is, uh, hashtag seminary while black, um, seminary, uh, or hashtag toxic fuller and hashtag black exodus. All right. Um, hashtag seminary while black, Hashtag Toxic Fuller and hashtag Black Exodus. Uh, if you get a minute, check those out uh, on your social media feed. Yo, this is the time that I think this is this is an era where you know people are waking up out of I don't want to say slumber, but they're waking up to a to a space and a position, knowing that we can no longer continue with business as usual. We just can't. We can't keep going the way we've been going, and. This is a great example of that. I know there was a good uh, protest and disruption at this year's uh, Fuller Baccalaureate. Students protested. They had uh, some posters. Uh, and this is powerful because white seminaries, you know, and white people say the same thing over, right? Oh, it takes time. Oh, it takes time. Well, God damn it. I'm tired of waiting. I mean, how much longer? A student read off this note uh, at one of these meetings and was like going off and saying like, you know, about all these things that, you know, black students were going on. And then she said this was the date from like 1987, 1986, right? And if you push it you think about it, you know, people have been talking about this. Uh, what's his name? Dr. Pinnell, Dr. Bill Pinnell. You know, he was talking about how he was raising these things back in 1965. So what in 50 years? You've had 50 years. What have you done? What ethnic minorities do you have? What ethnic minorities do you have in your literature? So, Because it's, it's not just a representation of people of color just as a face, but it's also in your curriculum. And I am so proud of these, these, these current students doing it. I mean, I'd be re- right there with them if I was still a student. As an alumni, I'm trying to use this platform of a podcast to you know, take this to the streets. And so I'm um, hoping next week we'll have a few of those students who are uh, protesting and just pushing back and just saying enough, enough is enough. You know, and, and, you know, in all honesty, if I had to do my Ph.D. over, I would not go to Fuller. I would not go to a white evangelical seminary. You know, um, you know, what's done is done. I did my time. I got my Ph.D. I'm done. I'm good. But in this day and age, it you know, white spaces, they are not healthy 
uh, for us as ethnic minorities, especially us as black and Latinx folks, um, anymore. They're just not healthy. I mean, we keep having the same dialogue. Well, let's sit down and talk. And yes, these are important things. And, you know, same. it takes time. And, you know, it, you know, we're trying our best here. It's just like, no, 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 no. We've been having this damn conversation. This was stuff that I was bringing up back in 2003. And here it is, 2018. I mean, and, 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 and there's receipts that go all the way back into the 60s. So, I'm, I, I, yeah, I just figured let me do what I can, and this is a platform for that. So I'm going to be bringing on some folks um, to, to talk about this. And, you know, in the meantime, check out the, the hashtags, Seminary While Black, Toxic Fuller, and Black Exodus. Um, you know, the average year, the average stay for an African-American faculty member at white institutions is around two to three years, okay? Two to three years. That's the average. Then they move on because they're just burnt. They're tired. Um, the average stay for um, black seminary folks or black, uh, you know, black event. Well, excuse me. The average stay for a black faculty member um, in a university is usually between five to seven years. Right. That's kind of around that tenure time, whether they get it or not. But there's a lot of pressure to be black and at a white institution. Now, I get that no job is perfect. I get that no place is perfect. I get that no all place has politics and things like that. At the end of the day, though. Um, we are asked as ethnic minorities to deal with a host of things. Oftentimes we are um, brought in as tokens. Uh, so just, you know, to be in sight, but out of mind, right? Uh, and we're, or we're brought in and mismatched for position and then told, oh, well, you didn't do the job. Wait, what? I didn't do the job. What do you mean? You know, you've given me impossible tasks to do. You know, white folks will make anything up, right? That's why I always take my tenure lightly. Because if they want to get rid of me, they'll get rid of me, right? They'll get rid of me. Um, so these are just some important things, y'all, that you just got to realize, especially if you're a white listener. You know, it is important to have representation in your curriculum. Like I've said before, I'm done having white cis male, heterosexual males uh, as authors in my class. They will not be in my my readings. We're going to read from ethnic minorities. People keep turning their palms up and saying, oh, I don't know. I don't know where to find them. Yo. Folks are out there. You ain't got to dig deep. How, how come I needed to know about Barth and Spurgeon and, and, and Henry Nowen and all them cats? You know, good stuff. But you don't have to know about Kerry Day. You don't have to know about Will Gaffney. You don't have to know about Andre Johnson. You don't have to know about any of these other folks who are, are ethnic minority theologians in order for you to get your doctor. But I do. So it's time. It's time for a change, y'all. So I'm bringing those guests on. Those are the two things I wanted to put on your map. Um, profane faith continues to be this space where we can kind of discuss those things um, and have a conversation around them. So I'm excited for that. This week, oh, my goodness, I've got an amazing guest, Sue Ann Shaw. Oh, my goodness. Wow. She is a thought leader. She is a great musician. I'm going to put some links to her music in the show notes. Um, I'll give you a little sample of her music. Uh, she is a leader. She has been involved in church ministry. She is engaged with these issues of intersectionality. She has a lot to say. She's extremely talented. And I mean, the whole interview, I mean, it really was just me being like, wow. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> you go check it out. And it was great. She has some amazing things to say. And I am just thankful to have brought her on. We've met several times. Our paths have crossed. Uh, she's been at a lot of different conferences. I do believe she was at Mystic Soul. And, um, you know, she's, again, she's just been amazing. Um, we had a chance to sit down and just talk about her life. 
um, talk about, you know, who she is as a person, as a woman, uh, as a Christian, as a person of faith, as a, as a musician, right? Like, how do you see things? You know, how do you see things as a poet? How do you see life around you as, as an Asian Christian woman trying to engage with these, you know, aspects of life of being a woman, being in, in, involved in this, you know, uh, she talks about, you know, for people who have been hurt by actions of the church in the past, hearing worship sung by those per, uh, perpetuators of violence can be a painful experience, not a peaceful one, and certainly not one that brings people closer to God. And so she is putting together some music. Like I said, I'm going to, um, I'm, I'm going to uh, put some of that music in, um, uh, I can put some of that music in the show notes so you can check it out. Get her album. These are the type of folks that you all need to support, you know, uh, that that are out there. She's an independent artist, right? She's put her own stuff out there. She's going to explain that. And again, we just have a very rich conversation. So, without any further ado, here's Sue Ann and I just having a great conversation. And by the way, if you haven't subscribed, you haven't gone on iTunes and rated us, please, by all means, do that. It's Currency of Podcast. Uh, thank you again for listeners. Here is Suzanne. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Well, um, well, Suzanne, thank you so much for coming on Profane Faith. It's good to have you here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Um, now, you are a musician. You are an, an, an avid musician. You are trained in Pro Tools and all that. I've heard some of your music, and we're going to sample all that here in 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 uh on the podcast but you know for the folks who don't know you what uh what has gotten you what's been your faith journey what what from birth to now has happened <laughs> i imagine there's been a few things <laughs> yeah oh gosh i you know i love this question i love i love giving a testimony <laughs> there we go so- <laughs> come on testify <laughs> so um I was born to two Taiwanese American Taiwanese immigrants here in Metro Detroit, and um, my family we were kind of involved in like a Chinese church a little bit when I was like up until I was five, um, and then when we moved to Portland, Oregon for two years, like we stopped going. And um, my family wasn't like particularly religious. I think that a lot of Chinese immigrants, people get involved in the church because it's a place for community mm-hmm. and not always because it's like they really like are converting or are like, or they're not just, they're not pious about it. I'm not going to act like it isn't its own kind of like engaging with a community of faith, but point is, is that it wasn't that important. And I grew up with these, you know, I usually call it like a vague Christian morality framework, like just what you get from growing up in America that like God exists Mm. and there's heaven and there's hell. And the Bible is a holy book, but we weren't, you know, we weren't practicing or like, um, or as I think like the Jewish community would say, um, like, from you know like we weren't yeah it was it was uh it was just something I kind of picked up culturally from you know and I'm like a child of immigrants so you like you you learn what the culture is and you assimilate into it and so right um it wasn't until I started going to this Christian camp in northern Michigan um called Huron Forest Camp Carith or Huron Forest Camp Cedar Ridge now um I kind of stumbled across it my sister took these voice lessons at a local church and I was really bored. So I just started reading random pamphlets <laughs> and I saw this camp 
and I was really, I was, I was eight. So I was really obsessed with horses at the time, which nice. is like a very normal little girl thing. And I saw <laughs> that they had horseback riding. So oh, I yes. was like, I am, I need to go to this camp mom because like, <laughs> I need to ride. Hor- I mean, I didn't tell her I need to ride horses, but I was like, I really want to go to this camp. And lo and behold, it was like a very conservative, like all girls Christian camp. Um, and so I started going there when I was nine and just went, I loved it. You know, like we sang, we worshiped like every, we sang at every meal, prayed. We learned Bible verses in our activity classes. We had a personal quiet time in the morning. And then we also had a Bible study with our cabin every Man. single day. Man. Um, it was like really intense, <laughs> but really wonderful. And yeah. I, yeah. I really fell in love with that community because people were so kind and generous and, and I felt embraced and welcomed and, and loved. And I was curious, I'm a, I've always been a curious person and I wanted to learn about God. And, you know, I loved Bible study. Like I wanted, I wanted to know. Yeah. So, yeah. um, every week I would go and I would learn all these things about God and I was really excited to engage. And then I would go home and, you know, I'm a kid. So like, I just go back to my life as it is. But, uh, when I was around 12, um, one of my friends, who's also Taiwanese American, she invited me to come to her youth group with her. And so I started going, that was like once a month. And then, um, and then my sister who had just been in her freshman, finished her freshman year of college came back and she had gotten involved with Campus Crusade when she was in college. And so she started going to church um, at a place nearby, invited me, I started going too. And, um, And then when I went to camp that summer, I had like all of this like, background work stuff that was going on in my life. And I remember praying, we have these like little quiet times at the end of the week with our, with our counselors, because they want to check in on you and see like, what are you learning? What can they pray for? It's an opportunity to, um, like lead someone in the sinner's prayer. If you, I know this because I became a staff member later on, but <laughs> like it's, yeah. So my counselor, you know, we were talking and I told her like, I started going to church with my sister and I really like it. And, and I just, I want God to be a part of my life. I don't want to go back and let it and have it be like every year where I just go back to my life. Like yeah. I, I want to keep going to church even when my sister goes back to college. Right. And, and I did. Like, and that's yeah. kind of like where it all started. I was 13 and, wow. um, and I'm a very intense person who's kind of an all in kind of personality. <laughs> Come on. So I, uh, I don't know if you can tell where this is going, but I basically <laughs> went like full scale, like assimilation and culturalization into uh, white American evangelicalism. So, <laughs> you know. I took very seriously verses that talked about the old man and the new man and, and becoming a new creation and being transformed by the power of the word. And, you know, I would wake up early, like half an hour to an hour early every day before school. And I would read my Bible and I would journal. I, before I went to bed every night, I would read like another half an hour. I read through the whole Bible, I think three times by the time I graduated college or graduated high school. So it's five years. Um, just because, like, I they told me, Suyan, like, it's important to read your Bible to know the word. And I was like, all right, here right, we go. <laughs> like, right, there's right. No, there's nothing. Like, tell me what to do and I will do it. Tell me to give something up. I'll give it up. Tell me to fast. I'll fast. Like, whatever it is, like, I want in. I want all in. I want to be transformed. And I, you know, my, my closest friends were still people from my camp who, um, 
who a lot of them kind of came from a more conservative homeschooler culture. I don't know how familiar you are with that or if you've uh, oh, bumped yeah. into that oh, kind yeah. of subcultural <laughs> world. Yes. Um, you know, it became very conservative uh, politically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I remember I listened to your episode with Brandy and she was talking <laughs> about voting, who she voted for and things like that. I, I really jumped all in and, um, you know, I'd go to the Christian bookstore every sun, like after church almost every Sunday and I would just like spend all my allowance money on <laughs> Christian books. <laughs> yes. Like, Yes. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. This this feels very like Daniel Camacho, too. Like, he definitely had this face, too. I really, right. um, I really identify with him yeah. in that aspect. Um, I was I sometimes tweet about this because I sometimes I have to laugh. Um, but I bought myself a Strong's Bible Concordance and Bible Dictionary mm-hmm. with my own money. Come on. My own, when I was Come 13. On. I know. Come on. Oh, 13, man. <laughs> I, 13. I, because I was so wow. I was so obsessed with studying the Bible that I was like, oh, boy, if I want to look something up, then, like, I don't have a good way to look it up. And I was like, oh, they have these things called concordances. That's what they're for. <laughs> I can right. buy that. <laughs> that is awesome. I was at least into my 20s when I got that. But 13, I'll give it to you, girl. Shoot. Come on. See, I mean, I was reading, you know, C.S. Lewis, I was reading Great Divorce, Mere Christianity, all that stuff. I um, I was, li- oh, I also used to listen to, ev- like, Focus on the Family on Christian Radio every day. Of course. Um, as a 13-year-old, <laughs> really excited to learn about family and marriage and parenting. <laughs> and um, There you go. And, uh, and that, you know, it, it was interesting how quickly I was able to just submerge myself in that world. I, I, um, I think about how in this, even just one year, mm. like how my life really changed and how I did everything that I could to kind of fall into that world. And so, you know, there was this like really intellectual hunger to study the Bible, to know it, to grow in my faith. I, I grew so quickly in that okay. year and the years after that. And, you know, just memorizing scripture, um, re- you know, I, I said I read the Bible, you know, like an hour. Like I tried to read for like an hour every day. Right. And um, and I think that like I'm really I look back at that time and sometimes I'm a little <laughs> I'm a, I'm I'm kind of ash- not I don't want to say ashamed, but hesitant to, to talk about it because like. I would like stand on the playground and preach at kids in my public school. Come like on now. I wrote my own tracks that I would print out and hand out to people. I actually got brought into the principal's office because they told me I needed to stop handing out my tracks. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's the person who I I was. You know, Bible study, small yes. like and youth group and church. You know, three or being at church three or four times a week. Wanting like I also you know, at the same time as all of my faith stuff was going on, I was also teaching myself to play guitar and Mm, writing mm. music. And, you know, a lot of really formative for me was worship music because it's so easy to play. So it's very encouraging way and a regular way to practice and just, and to feel like you're, you have a reason to keep trying to learn to play the guitar because like someone has to lead worship at Bible Saturday every week. So that's right. Mm things like that. And, um, and, but the thing is I was really, the church I was going to was like a big non-denominational mega church. Right. And I started to feel like I started to get bored 
with it, especially because I want, you know, I dived in really deep, but then I found out their their pool wasn't that deep. <laughs> so <laughs> um, I started looking for other churches. I really wanted to to go deeper in faith, and I I struggled with that because I, you know, they they were all very secret sensitive, and they had sought me, and they had me, and now what were they going to do to keep me? <laughs> like, you know, and I, I, I those like five years um, from when I converted until I graduated from high school were very seeped in like mega church culture. So I then I, I went. And, you know, and I, I'm a musician, so I loved mm. the, like, really high-quality, like, immersive worship experiences. Um, but I did have problems because I was studying and reading all these things, and, and I would hear, like, my small group leaders or, like, youth group leaders say things, and I'd be like, that's not biblical. And, <laughs> you know, I think that from the outside looking in, there are all these values that evangelicalism told me like reading your Bible and faithfulness and all these things. But then when I lived, like when I tried to live those out, I assumed that, you know, I would gain social acceptance Mm. by living out values (laughs) that they taught me were important and eventually realizing that none of that actually was what governed and what like a social capital valued. And mm. I think that that was really hard for me because I just kept thinking, what what do I need to do to be more obedient? What do I need to do to assimilate better? What do I need to do? Um, because like I'm doing everything they're telling me to do and I'm still, I just still not fitting in. And it was actually really hard because the thing that they were telling me to do was, was sometimes the thing that made me not fit in because being the girl who says that's not biblical when, <laughs> when the cool kid prays a certain way and you're like, but that's not like, why are you, <laughs> it doesn't really you know, they'll, they'll never shun you because they're not allowed to be mean to you because they're, you know, seeker friendly. But, but you know, you're never fully embraced. And and there is, you know, and looking back now, I definitely see that whiteness was a big part of it because all of these spaces I were, was in was like super, super white centered as well as like pop numbers wise, very white. And I that was one thing that I I recognized, but I didn't process until later on. Okay. Um, I actually remember my first church I went to, there was only like one, there was one Chinese family, other Chinese family, or just like not other. There was one Chinese family, because I'm not a family. I'm just a one, I'm just 13 year old, um, <laughs> whose parents are dropping her off at church and picking her up four oh, times a week. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and so I remember thinking, wow, like there's really no other like Chinese people or Asian people here. Um, and I, I I talked about, are you familiar? Do you know Ken Fong? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was on this podcast a while back ago, and I talked about how one of the things I thought about, I was on a, do you, are you familiar with traditional Chinese lion dancing? I, like yes, yes. Chinese year, things like that. So uh-huh. I was on a dance team for my Chinese school, and there, you know, there's all this stuff we talk about, like scaring away evil spirits and mm-hmm. things, because that's part of, like, traditional Chinese, you know, cultural practice, traditional religion, whatever, ancestor, spirituality, whatever. Um, And I thought to myself, oh, like, is this like idolatry? Because like, I don't, Mm, you know, like all these 
because this is like a different power. And I remember thinking, oh, do I need to quit being on the lion dance team? Because and I was like, Jesus, are you asking me to do that? Like, <laughs> and, I, and I felt like the, there was, I remember I had a moment where I was hanging out with a bunch of my friends from Chinese school and talk, maybe I was or what I wasn't talking about the Bible or about my faith, but I do remember feeling awkward about it and a little out of place for being so obsessed about Jesus in a community that was pretty secular and, um, and thinking, am I whitewashed because hmm. I'm, I literally remember using the word whitewashed in my head. Am I becoming whitewashed because I'm becoming a Christian? And I was like, I really don't want to because I really like being Chinese. <laughs> Man. And I was probably like 15 or 16 um, because like it was a really big part of my life. I mean, I my my parents, like all of their closest friends are all like Taiwanese. We went to Chinese school, you know, every Saturday I was captain of the lion dance team for like two years. All right. And, all these other things we speak, we speak Chinese, we speak Mandarin at home and we eat Chinese foods. And I, I've, my normal has always been, you know, a different kind of normal than my like suburban white American counterparts. Um, but I always took it in stride and it never felt like a problem, but I did feel some of these tensions early on, um, about what I was expected to leave behind and what the norms were. Yeah. I also like really, I, I remember there is that there is a convert aspect kind of wrapped up in that too, where um, you know all the families and all the my my peers in church they were all white, but also they all came from Christian families, and there's you know in most of my Chinese Taiwanese community wasn't, okay. and I felt jealous. I went, felt jealous of my peers that like they could have Bible studies with their parents. They would pray together. Like there are all these things I really wanted for my family. And I, and I, um, and I was told that the church was my family, mm -hmm. but I looked around, I just saw a bunch of white people and little pockets of their biological families and no one really like making me their child or, or taking me in as a daughter when yeah. I was expected to kind of leave my own family behind. Wow. And um, there's a really wonderful piece that came out in Inheritance a few months, uh, maybe a month or two ago that kind of really resonated with me um, about this feeling like you're supposed to like, you know, leave your family. And um, but anyway, so I was kind of, you know, I was kind of like observing these tensions, but mostly just trying to live my life. Um, I remember, you know, I was sad and I was like, okay, I wish my parents were Christians, but they're not. But God has the reason for everything. So, Suyan, what is the reason <laughs> that God, God put you in this body, in this family, in this time, in this place, in this moment in history? And I interpreted all of that as I'm supposed to be a missionary in China hmm. <laughs> because I speak Chinese. Also, they don't let missionaries into China. And so I have the cultural as well as ling like linguistic fluid, like fluency, wow. yeah. Yeah. be able to reach people in a way others aren't and um, all these sorts of things. So I like... Again, I was a very precocious 13-year-old. I, like, called a local missions organization and was like, do you have a program I can go on? And they were like, we don't have anything for, like, teenage, for 13-year-olds. Wow. Wow. 13. <laughs> like, 
I was like, I want to do a summer trip, right? Like people talking about these like summer <laughs> trips all the time. I'm like, I want to do a summer trip to like, you know, a place where they imprison Christians. Like, you know, because I was like that gung-ho about my faith. And of course, my mother thought that was ridiculous. My mom, um, that, by the way, that missions organization did not send me, but the woman on the phone was very helpful. And she was like, you know, maybe God is calling you to this, but maybe he doesn't mean like right now, <laughs> maybe like eventually. And of course I'm 13. So like, I can't hear it. I'm just like, no, it's now God wants me to do this now. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, but she was very gentle, very kind. I did find a program through, like I think Campus Crusade ha- because has a program that's for teenagers, and of course I think it was called like Orient Express or something. They couldn't say China in it because they oh. can't say that you're going to China. Right. And I was applying for that all this stuff, and there was these release permission forms that I had to do because I was a minor, and I showed them to my mom, and there was like all these security. Uh, protocols on it is like you can't mention the word Bible or church or like I think in your emails and blah 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 my mom was totally freaked out like what is this thing that my daughter wants to go into this is ridiculous like I (laughs) this doesn't seem safe and I was so angry she's like Mm. I'm the I'm the mom and I say no. And I was like, dang it, I can't disagree with you because I'm supposed to honor and obey you. <laughs> like, and I really wrestled with like, oh, you know, my parents are not Christians. Do I still have to obey them? If, if like the call of God, my, my call to obedience from God is higher than them, then like I, I don't need to obey them. But then I was like, no, but see, man, like this isn't, this isn't sin. Your parents aren't asking you to sin. This is like a thing that you want to do that they won't let you. And I had to have like a moment of like, zoom out, you're 13. (laughs) These are your parents. God put this authority over you in your life. Like you really need to like you. And I remember my youth pastor preaching about how your parents, like God will always side with your parents over you, except like, unless it's like explicit sin. So you should just obey your parents. And I remember like, okay. Um, (laughs) But but that was kind of an interesting interpretation of my like situation that I had. Um, but that gives you a picture of the really precocious 13 year old that I was. And, um, and I, so I didn't fit in. I was like so rambunctious. I was so studious. I was so really concerned with like right, what the right thing was, what the, what the truth is in doing the right thing. And, um, and so, like, again, I said it made me unpopular, okay. but um, not not unpopular, but not popular. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> um, and I knew I remember when I knew I was going to be a musician or I was going to do music. Okay. I was at a youth. I was at a youth retreat and I was 15. Uh, I was win winter youth retreat and I was in this moment of worship and I didn't really like have a vision, but I had like a kind of like a rev revelation. I just, and God was kind of like, you're going to do this. You're going to go do music stuff. And my personality, generally speaking, is very cautious. If anyone ever plays poker with me, they know that I never like, I never play unless I actually have anything. Cause I just don't like to take risks. And, <laughs> and music <laughs> was one of those things that I was like, Oh, like immigrant kid, like you can't just like go out on a limb and like do this thing when all your friends are going to become doctors and engineers and lawyers and you know what what kid is going to go and and do that and and I just remember like oh I've always been interested in this I love doing it but I don't know if I would ever do it as a career and then God kind of being like no you're going to do this 
And also like finding Belmont University, which is where I went for my undergrad. Okay. They have a music business college actually. And um, a whole like songwriting program. Wow. Like, this major audio engineering, whole shebang. And where's um, this located at? Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. All right. And um, the children of like the pastor of my, the first church I went to went there, a bunch of them did the commercial music program or music business program. And, um, and that's how I'd heard of the school was through kind of like church connections. And so I looked at the program. I was like, this is amazing. This is everything I want. Um, I knew really early on, like when I was like 15, I was like, I want to go to Belmont and I want to I want to be a songwriting major. <laughs> like, you know, I, I wanted to be a singer songwriter. So it kind of it made sense to me. And, um, and I was so excited to kind of like, I had this idea of like what my life was going to be and the calling that I had. And, um, and I, I mentioned how I was really intellectually uh, dissatisfied with my church community. And I was a little bit artistically dissatisfied just being like an artsy kid in general who like feels things very deeply, listens to weird, obscure indie music, like enjoys reading poetry, that whole deal. And um, enjoys writing poetry <laughs> and enjoys writing songs. Uh, and when I visited Belmont and I fell in love, like one of my, my old, my friends from camp was there, a year older than me and she was there. So I stayed with her on, on an audition weekend and she was involved with RUF, which is Reformed University Fellowship. Uh, and invited me along to hang out with her friends. We went sledding. I hung out with all these RUF kids who were all just so like artistic and smart and intellectual. And I was, I was like in love. Like I, I was in love with uh, this. I was like, this is the faith community that I've always wanted, right? Like people who not only like when I was at youth group, I used to be like, you know, and I've been reading this book and it says blah 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 blah. And then people kind of look at me and then they nod. But when I was <laughs> hanging out with RUF kids, I would bring up a book and somebody had been reading. And they'd be like, yeah, I've heard that. And then they would tell me their thoughts. And then we could have a discussion about it. <laughs> and I finally had people who knew the weird, obscure music that I listened to and also read the weird, obscure theology books that I was reading and were engaging. And it was I just fell in love immediately hmm. with that community. And And I look at it and I'm like, this is exactly what I needed to grow and to be challenged at that time to mature in my faith. I was really, really, I mean, just tired of megachurch world. I, I wanted to leave the giant megachurch. I was at my senior year of high school, but I enjoyed serving on the like four ministry teams that I was on. So okay. I only showed up to serve and I didn't attend any services. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I really wanted less, you know, I love the, I love the production, good production value, but it got kind of gimmicky for me after a while. And, um, I wanted something that was more stripped down something. And I, I was really getting into hymns at the time. And, um, Jars of Clay has this hymns album called Redemption Songs. And it was my favorite. It's my, it's still my favorite Jars of Clay album, hmm. but do you do you know that one? <laughs> I don't, I mean, you know what? I don't, I'm not even, I, I, I'd probably have to hear it. But I know jars of clay. I mean, I was yeah. plenty of jars of clay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just, I mean, I started to really get into like, I started liking hymns and that was kind of weird because like everyone just wanted to know what the like latest fee song was because that's what people <laughs> were saying back then before, you know, the fee scandal. And <laughs> Oh, man. 
or Hillsong, you know, even back then Hillsong was still pop. It was also popular, but, um, but I was getting into like weird hymns. And, um, and so I showed up at Belmont and RUF and started hanging out there. I was really attracted to the preaching cause it was, um, really intellectual, very rigorous. I felt challenged finally after, you know, sitting in a mega church for five years and, um, and then I found out that like that that actual album, the literal Jars of Clay Redemption Songs album came out of the Belmont RUF community. No way. I didn't yeah, know I was that. like <laughs> I was sitting in a Bible study with my campus minister and um, they did a co-ed Bible study at a lunchtime, like on Fridays once a week. And we were talking it was a hymn it was a hymns Bible study. So we would like kind of like learn about different hymn writers throughout history and their stories and then examine some of their texts. And so he just casually dropped that that album had been, that came out of our community. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> like I didn't even realize that like this, that like Belmont RUF is like a, like a big deal. Like I just liked the people and I just kind of enjoyed your preaching. And like now I'm finding out that a lot of the music that, um, that I loved was came out of this community and it's Nashville. So like everybody knows some, everybody in the Christian music industry. And so it was, it, it, it's not that surprising when you've been there for a while, but um, it was, it was a very, you know, providential placement that like the thing I was looking for, I actually got to go to the, to the source of that, the community that, yeah. that was a part of it. And it made sense that the things that I valued were also like I also found that in the people that I was there, so that's how I got involved with RUF and okay. the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America. <laughs> if you're familiar with that denomination, yeah, I don't know, absolutely. So RUF is their college ministry. Okay, and that's how I became a Presbyterian. <laughs> Man, that was that. I mean, this this is amazing. I'm still tripping off the fact that you were 13 buying Concordance and and and, and you're ready to go on a missions trip. Yeah, it's illegal China. <laughs> the more the I mean, I read Jesus Freaks, so the more dangerous, the more you know, appealing right. to my, my young martyr complex. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, so uh, so with all that, I mean, because this is a rich story. I mean, with all, I mean, where do you find yourself now? Then, I mean, in the in in this era, and not just with who's president. I mean, but it just seems like, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, just religion gone bad. I mean, it's like you could do a whole reality series just oh, yeah. on conservatism and and just oh, weird yeah. things, and, and then the extreme left that you know still wants to make you know oh, the religious left. And so I don't know. It's just very interesting time. So I'd be curious and just to know where 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 are you at now? Where do you find yourself? You know, in these in some of these spaces. You know, it's so fascinating to me because the tools that uh, a lot of the tools I had to kind of like open my eyes to the issues that were going on, mm -hmm. you know, whether they were hermeneutical tool, tools, theological tools were given to me by these very white, you know, spaces. I mean, Daniel talked about his own experience with the reformed <laughs> Calvinist world, right. which is right. like also where, you know, I've been and, and was and um you know, the first time I learned about systemic or like systematic racism, systemic racism was on a RUF mission trip to Chicago okay. with um, right. with Sunshine Gospel Ministries, which is a CCDA organization. And um, we learned about Shalom and all these things. And 
you know, it was so fascinating. I was the only student of color on that trip. And, um, and we were learning about, you know, racism, definitely like in a, cause it's Chicago too. So in a, like a black white way. Um, but I was finally having language to describe things I'd experienced my whole life, like in the church and outside of the church. And I had like a whole, like, I just, a break, like not a breakdown, but I just cried. Like, you know, people do the, um, after you go do a trip or something, you need to debrief. So we were talking, like doing a debrief at the end of the day and I just started crying. And I just, this is a memory I, I, I think about a lot now. It's just like all these nice white girls sitting in a circle around me, not knowing what to do <laughs> about the crying girl. <laughs> um, and trying their best, you know, but like life had not prepared them for this moment. Right, right. And, you know, they were learning all these things and they were purely intellectual, right? They are purely theological. They are sure. purely sociological. Yep. But for me, it was like, it was in my body, right? Mm. And uh, and I think that that was one of the, the hard things for me is I point to RUF, I point to the PCA for, you know, encouraging me on exploring racial justice and reconciliation and it, like these issues to learn about like racial disparity. And, um, you know, I, th that was one part of it was I was being encouraged to learn about these things um, from, you know, the white, the white leaders, which mm -hmm. was, you know, I think really encouraging too, because it, you know, when you're trying so hard to like believe and do the right things, you, you look to certain like leaders to, to signal to you what is acceptable and what isn't. And, and so the fact that it was white leaders who were telling me it was good for me to like yeah. learn this stuff was encouraging. Um, my campus minister encouraged me to continue to explore what my Chinese identity meant to me as a Christian, like we we both were able to sit in a coffee shop and acknowledge how my years in white evangelicalism had denied me that part of myself and that I should explore that. And, you know, he had like an adopt, he has an adopted daughter from China. So like, you know, he, he at least on that level could understand why it was important for me to have a cultural identity and understanding because they were also trying to do that for their daughter. Okay. Um, but, you know, I, I always, the, the book that I point to that really changed my life, that really, um, I think has made my journey different, especially from other Asian Americans that I know is when I was 16 in modern thought and literature class at my public high school in the white suburbs of Detroit, we read the autobiography of Malcolm X. Okay. And All right. There, there, we read a lot of books in that class. We, you know, we studied Camus and like existentialism and, you know, mm. like all these other, we, you know, we read B.F. Skinner's Walden too. Like we read all these amazing books. I, I mean, Malcolm X hands down was like the most engaging and appealing, I think, out of all of those books, because it was the only book written by a, a person of color. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that I've always had a, a trouble identifying with postmodern pathos because it's very white. And even though yeah. Yeah. X is very, was, is very radical and very like a whole different world for me, I still identified with his posture, with his, like the, 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 the mode of storytelling more than I did all those other writers. And, um, 
and you know, it's so interesting because he grew up in Lansing, which is like, you know, an hour from me mm. and, and yeah. had all these experiences and we lived in very different worlds. Right. And his, his own father was murdered by the KKK and, um, and that happened like an hour from where I live. Wow. <laughs> right. And, wow. um, and I lived in this little white suburban bubble and there were, by the way, there were no black people in my modern thought and literature class. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was a bunch of white kids with like a couple Asian kids, like South Asian and East Asian, like scattered oh, in. Man. And I remember having these discussions yeah. where, where like what, what was white fragility before I knew what white fragility was, yes. Yes. was like, was like rearing its head. And all these white kids were like, he says we're the devil. And I was like, but you did do all those things. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you can't pretend that like you didn't enslave black people for 400 years and rape right. and murder and like all these, like you can't, right. but they were all just like, but am I the devil? And I'm like, that's not really like, it's, you understand this is like, metaphorical language right like he doesn't literally mean like <laughs> but, right but um i didn't get it like i read the book i thought <laughs> you know uh he's kind of he has some wild ideas like i i don't know but like it was interesting but i remember going my freshman year in addition to like moving like being part of this new faith community i also moved to the south from so mm. i grew up in Metro detroit and then i moved to nashville and living in go the south was yeah. it just turned up the heat oh yeah yeah. And, I, and, and all the things, it, I, people want to say like, oh, the racism, they're, they're racist in the South. And I'm like, they're, and this is also Malcolm X's point. They're also racist in the North. It just Absolutely. looks different. Absolutely. And so like the heat got turned up on me and I started to notice, oh, I'm in a pot of water. You know, it's a lobster thing. Like, you know, it's kind of warm. You're just taking a bath. But then when the water starts to get hot, you start to get uncomfortable. That's when you notice you're in the bath. And I started to think about what it was. And it, Belmont is very, very white. Like, I thought Northville was white. My, when I visited <laughs> Belmont, my dad was like, Suman, are you sure you want to go here? There's not a lot of Asian people. <laughs> we, like, toured this school, my dad. He was like, you sure you want to go here? There are a lot of Asian people. And I was like, I love white people. I spend my all my time with white people because school is mostly white, church is mostly white. But then I went to Belmont and I was like, oh, this is a whole new level of white people. Like, I wrote a piece about it uh, a couple years ago, and I said it's the difference between being the only one person of color in all your class in your in each of your classes, and there being like two or three people of color in each of your classes. Okay, okay. it was like a really big difference between like three percent and ten percent, and it's. It's being alone. It's actually about being alone and kind of like the gaslighting you go through when you don't have anyone to kind of like compare notes with and to like right. set to just know that you aren't, to be honest, going crazy. Yes. And and so I, I went back and I reread the autobiography of Malcolm X my freshman year and I got it. Like it mm. made sense. It's, it actually started to make sense to me. And and I think that I always want to point to that because I'm like, this black Muslim man is the reason yeah. that I was able to get outside of my really white evangelical box and to start thinking critically about power. Right. Because, you know, you can learn about racial reconciliation and, oh, we want to be friends and, oh, we want to cross culture. But, but Malcolm, he gets power. He understands who holds the power. He was talking about systemic injustice. He was talking about, you know, standards of beauty. He was talking about the colonization of the mind. Right. And those are the kind yes. of things that you're going to hear about 
a racial reconciliation conversation. Like, yeah. So reading that helped me, and 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 it just that and the encouragement of of engaging racial issues from my church and from RUF, I started reading a lot of a lot of critical race theory and um, started reading, you know, Asian American writers, feminist stuff. Um, I mean, like critical race theory is all like, it's all intermingled with intersectional stuff. So you start reading about one thing and you can't help but read about the others. And especially when you talk about Orientalism, there's a lot of gendering involved in the way that, um, Asian women and Asian men experience racism differently. And the fetishization of Asian women is part of like this feminization, um, which is synonymous with Orientalism. So I was Uh. learning about that stuff. Also, like, I mean, I didn't have a lot. There weren't other Asians at Belmont, but there were a a few black people. And I think that that was something that like, I didn't have Asian community when I was there, but I was able to... um, to really find respite with, with the black community. And I think that that's also like an interesting part of my own journey that would not, that is not, and would not have happened if I had not moved to the South. Right. And had this very specific experience, um, where the closest I could get the, like I needed a break from the oppressiveness of like the, of, of white air, right. Like when you're in the room and you're just like, no, who could, who holds power. (laughs) Yes. I need to get away from that. And, you know, I couldn't go somewhere that was, I mean, I had this little Chinese church I like worked at on Sunday mornings. But other than that, like I went to black spaces to feel free of that white air, um, because even if it wasn't my space, at least it was like a break from feeling the pressure, the air pressure all the time. Yes. So anyway, man, that I mean, that's I mean, that's interesting. I mean, Malcolm X. I mean, I know. Well, I mean, I know the first time I read it, too. I mean, it wasn't it didn't make sense to me in my my fundamentalist years. It's funny how a lot of us have gone through those fundamentalist, you know, uh, sections and whatnot and, you know, and read different things. I mean, so that, uh, you know, so that makes sense. That makes total sense. I mean, and especially I mean, it, you know, and, and I mean, you know, for those of you who don't know and, 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 and people listen, I mean, you know, it's like I was with the Nation of Islam for a while. So it's like I, you know, I came back and I was like, oh, man, I, I want to, you know, indoctrinate this mm. and and take it all in and whatnot. So, but it's, you're right. You're right. There is racism in the North Lord knows. And here in in Chicago, I mean, come on now. Um, But you're right. It is a different type. I mean, I always know when I cross the border over into a Southern state um, and just, you know, the first stop we make, if I'm driving, you know, it's like, okay, this, this, the South. All right. You know, Um, beautiful country, but you know, Yes, you know the the worldviews are on the outside rather than the inside, as opposed to here in the north. Um, I'm curious too, just you know, as you're listening to this and you're engaging with you know X and you're you know with where you're at and your music. I mean, what what um, see what am I trying to ask? I how would you then engage with you know with like I said some of the some of the stuff that we're even dealing with now immigration um you know now you got this uh, the supreme court just ruled that you know the what was it that baker you know they yeah, can, yeah. you know they got you know we got this stuff going on i mean every day is something new mm-hmm. you know some mm-hmm. new law so how is faith making sense for you now um and in in the mm-hmm. day-to-day you know and, and maybe you can yes. share you know just how you you know express yeah. that through your art i mean because music yeah. is a powerful medium i would say that my faith has in its core, not really changed. So 
Um, I was also going to follow up with saying like, I went through this whole racial awakening, right. When I was in college and like freshman year, just right there. I also went through uh, a queer awakening. And so, um, I started at the same time I was going through all this racial identity formation. I also was recognizing and acknowledging for the first time that I was attracted to women. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm bisexual. So it was like, it came kind of late for me because, I had always been attracted. I had crushes on boys, you know, other boys I wanted to date in youth group, whatever. Yeah, so I yeah. never thought about it until I, you know, until my freshman year. And it started to over kind of like, oh, wow. It, people call it second puberty. I don't know if you've ever heard that I term. Have, yeah, but, yeah. Um, <laughs> I like to joke that, you know, I finally understood what it was like to be a teenage boy because I was like, there's boobs everywhere. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> look away, Suehan, look away. Oh, man, that's, that's um, funny. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that was really, I think the racial stuff, you know, was, I'm going to put it state sanctioned, right? Like I was taking it further than what they were giving me. They were encouraging me, though, to go in that direction. Okay. But the queer stuff was definitely like the, re, like making all things new. Um, and I... I went through a really hard time with that. Um, I remember when I finally admitted to myself, right, because I was in denial for like a year. I finally admitted, like, God, like, I think I'm attracted to women. And I don't know who I am anymore because there, there's a person who I thought I always was and who I would be. And, and I knew from my, like, socialization into Christianity that it was the one thing that could get me out, keep me out. Yeah. You know, I was, I tell people all the time, you can kill, you can murder, you can steal, you can be a former drug addict, you can do whatever, but you cannot be gay. Yep. Amen. That's, that's <laughs> the double truth truth. Yes. You can, you can grab women by the pussy. You can embezzle money. You can <laughs> yes. imprison women and children and separate families. You can, there's a lot of things you can do, but you can't be gay. And, um, and I just went the, my sophomore year was the hardest year of my life. Okay. And, um, and in that whole process, I f- was super isolated because I just knew the cost of, of telling anyone what was going on was really high. So only like, you know, two or three people in my life knew because I just, I also was aware that like you can't completely keep a secret, otherwise it will kill you. So I like told the yeah. people I trusted, but I was so afraid that anyone would find out. And I was so isolated. No one, and I was just like, nobody knows. No one knows what's going on in my life. Like all these people, they're fools. They're all fools. And, um, and the only person who was there, the only comfort I had in the world was God. Right. Okay. Um, cause when I said, I don't know who I am anymore, God said, I, I know who you are. I've always known who you are, even if you didn't. And I am still going to be here. And so, you know, I, one of the songs on my album is a is a solid rock. Hmm. Um, or the first line of it is, my hope is built on nothing less. And, um, and that really was where I was. Every hope, every dream, every security, every frame in my life was was sand beneath my hands. And I like tried to grasp to it and it would all roll away all like, and I tell people, I, I experienced in that year, the crumbling of my idol of heterosexuality. Wow. Whoa. 
<laughs> I thought I was heterosexual, and I wow. did not realize how much of my identity was founded on that until mm. it disappeared. <laughs> wow, that's deep. That's that, I, that'll preach right there. And I was in shambles, right? But God, that was the thing is God was faithful through all of that. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. God, when I couldn't love myself. God said, I love you, mm, right? I mm. never for a single second, well, one, my soteriology, my reform soteriology does not allow me to believe that I'm going to hell <laughs> because I'm gay because right. I'm not saved by being straight. So <laughs> That's right, that's right. <laughs> right, so when I say unconditional election, I really mean unconditional, like not unconditional asterisks, unless you're gay. And, <laughs> and you know, and I, and I want to tell you that that actually like a reformed soteriology is what kept me sane was knowing that like total depravity, unconditional election, like all these things, like perseverance of the saints. My album is called a liturgy for the perseverance of the saints. You know, the whole covenant theology, you can't lose your salvation. Okay. And that means that Suyan like, you can't lose your salvation, even if you're gay. <laughs> and maybe the rest of the world will understand that. And maybe you'll be kicked out of church and maybe you'll have nowhere to go. But guess what? Like, you can be sure in Jesus. Wow. Because your salvation is not of yourself. It's not something that you believed into being. It's not something that you good work. You did good works and were able to earn your righteousness. No, you can't earn your righteousness. And that's really, really good news. Yeah. For somebody who the world tells is condemned. And so that was what I was going through. And that is the foundation of my faith. The uh, Jesus is the author and the finisher of my faith. And there were so many times those years I was exhausted. I was, I, mm. I knew I couldn't change my sexuality. I knew there wasn't an option. I never, you know, tried to pray the gay way. Never, you know, <laughs> sought any pray sort of the like gay. therapy, any sort of ex-gay like reparative therapy. I never saw it. And I thought, just like when I was unhappy that I was Chinese and also not in a Christian family, I thought God has to have done this for a reason. And I have to figure out what that reason is. And, um, mm. you know, we have a hymn that we sing a lot in RUF and, um, joy to find in every station, right, is like a line. And um, something, <laughs> joy to find in every station, something new, like new to live or learn or something like that. It's been a long time. Um, but that was, that's, that was the the crucible of my, of my modern, of my like personhood. And I came out stronger for it, right? Like as wow. the as the like a gold and silver goes through the fire, it it's purified, right? Like like literally, these are like what we talk about in the Bible. I felt that I felt I was pressed, and all of my my sin and my idolatry and my weaknesses they were being stripped away. I was I felt like the the ringing power of. God's sanctification, Holy, Holy Spirit sanctifying me. And it was painful and terrible in that sense, but like nothing could shake me from then on. And so I was keenly aware of how as a gay Christian, or as, I mean, I think of myself more as queer than gay. Um, I was caught in the middle of a culture war. Hmm. Like, you know, I listen to Focus Family. I know. Like, I know the culture war. <laughs> Focus <laughs> I, I, yeah. I hear people talking about, you know, those gays, those homosexuals, those people. And and I knew that in the in-group outgrouping of the mind. Yeah. 
that the second they heard the word gay or lesbian, that I would be a them and I wanted to be an us. And there was nothing I could do Man. except maybe like use like when I come out to people, maybe use words that aren't going to like immediately have those connotations. You know, I'm attracted to women, same sex attraction, whatever, um, using certain language to help keep people from doing that gut reaction of like them enemy yeah. words that they hear when they associate with gay. Um, and so, you know, you asked about the Supreme court case that ruling that just came out about the, the wedding cakes. And I, you know, I read it very carefully and, um, and it's not really, it's, it's not really a decision. <laughs> it's more like a pause. <laughs> Yeah, they they kind of like like opted out of making a real judgment that would set a legal precedent, um, which I actually really appreciate because as a person who is a Christian with very sincerely held beliefs and a person who is um, queer, I can see it from both sides. And and that was the thing that really started to change for me, especially as I, you know, I used to only see it from the Christian side. And then I once I was. I realized I was stuck with this LGBTQ community, even if I didn't want to be part of them. I was one of them. Mm -hmm. I had thinking about them, and and I tell people all the time I had to repent because because um, I never cared about LGBTQ people until I was one of them. Mm. You know, um, you know, I would have easily have just written them off or just said, "Well, then you just don't act on it," or like, you know, I I was ready to. To, con to condemn them to a, a lonely life um, without a second thought until that wow. until that sentence became mine. And I had to really start to think through what it is I believed, what, and, and like I said, the idolatry of heterosexuality in the church, the idolatry of marriage, which I also saw in my straight siblings who were single. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's like a phenomenon that's very of this moment, too, is even heterosexual people are marrying later and later. And also like Christian women have always kind of had a hard time. Mm -hmm. A lot of them with being single started to think about all of that. And um, and so I was going to I'm going to say, like, because for me, I. My faith went through all of this. I found out what it was made out of yeah. five, five, six years ago. So all this political stuff, it just kind of, it's been watching stuff happen on the outside that I dealt with on the inside a long time ago. And it's been interesting because like I've been able to walk a lot of people through it and hold their hands and kind of like offer resources. And like, this is what helped me when I was going through this. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I think the hardest thing has not been so much my faith changing, but my um, my relationship with the body of Christ. And okay. I think that before I assumed that I that they saw me as one of their own, and that they would that like I cared for them, I was serving them, I was submitting, and that like when the time came, they would also be taking care of me and defending me. And the last couple of years has been seeing that they have, they do not. When um, you say the day, when you say they do not, who's, who's the day? White, the white evangelical church. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, 
you know, I think a lot about the metaphor of the body, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens when you are so numb that you can't even feel the pain in different parts of your body anymore? Wow. Yeah. It's because they've castrated, um, you know, themselves because they cut off parts of themselves. You know, what does it feel like to be the hand that gets cut off because they don't think you're part of them? Um, I think about that a lot with the LGBTQ members of the church body, that people assume that they're not Christians and their pain. They don't, you know, people talk about empathy, but I'm like, it's not even empathy. It's about feeling your own body because we're not talking about another body. We're supposed yeah. to be one body and you can't anymore because that is, that is what racism and white supremacy and homophobia have done to you that you can't even, you can't even feel your own mm. body anymore. Mm. So, um, so what do you do with that? Right? Like how do you live <laughs> yeah. Yeah. with, if like they are just going to abuse you because they can't feel your pain, but I feel their pain. Um, how do you love people who don't love you back? And um, and that was a question I asked a lot when I was um, when I was coming to grips with my sexuality. Was I loved the church, but the church did not love me, mm. or at least. And I remember I heard this, uh, this English professor, she spoke at, we have a convocation program at Belmont. I don't know if you know what that is. Instead of chapel, we just go to these lectures. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Yeah. It's great. I love it. I, I love <laughs> hearing speakers. So it was cool. No, so do I. I'm the I'm same way. But uh, we had this professor, this English professor come in from Calvin and she talked about trying to find God's love um, in an unrequited love story. Because she was like maybe in her 50s or 60s and she was single. And, you know, all of the people always talk about Christ and the bride and the bridegroom and the church and, you know, love. And people, especially at weddings, people love talking about that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, okay, but what about me? Like, how do I experience this unique part of God's love as a single person? And she said, well, there's something to be said for unrequited love and how God loves us unrequitedly. Man. So. There's like a kind of like martyrdom complex with that, though, especially when like you're a queer woman of color. It's like, I'm just going to keep loving these people, even though they don't love me, because that's what Jesus would do. And then right. you end up getting really burned out. And um, and I had to I had to take a break. I had to like really step away. Um, and, you know, it was it was honestly other women of color in my life who told me that I, I was allowed to do that. OK. And then I was allowed to stop letting my bridge be, or my back be used as a bridge for a while. Wow. Um, it, not because the work wasn't important, but because, um, because, because I mattered too. I wasn't just like a conduit for um, for white straight people to become better. Right. Like, um, you know, there's like oftentimes people of color are expected to, you know sacrifice themselves so that white people can become better people or better Christians or women are expected to suffer and lay themselves down so that men can become better or, you know, queer people are expected to take the high road and so that straight people can become better Christians. And to that, I have to say, um, the first question in the Westminster Catechism is (laughs) what is the chief end of man and says to glorify God and enjoy him forever, not 
So like the chief end of women is not to like make men better. <laughs> it's to glorify God and to enjoy God. Right. Uh, and that's, yeah. that's the heritage we have is like people who are made in the image of God, who have been, t- who have been treated as though we are not full mm. image bearer. Right. And, um, and like, I, I read this book, the book that I read that actually I was tweeting about this because it's pride month. People were like, tell your yeah. coming out story. And I was like, well, I was at RUF summer conference and I was reading Sinclair Ferguson's children of the living God, which is about the doctrine of adoption. <laughs> it's like very PCA is very reformed. And it basically told me that nothing could take away my adoption in Christ. Nothing could take away my inheritance. And, you know, all these PCA guys were teaching me like, you know, you are a woman, but you have full rights of a son. You have legal legal like rights as an adopted son into the kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you are not a second class citizen in the kingdom of God. You are fully made in the image of God. And that means that I also get to enjoy God and glorify God and that I don't exist simply so that a straight white man can become a better person. That my my relationship with God, my dignity deserves respect. So mm. Um, so this is kind of the, I'm an interesting hodgepodge of like really reformed things mixed with like liberation, theology and critical race and intersectional Man. feminist theory. <laughs> like, no, I love it. This that's <laughs> I love the complexity here. That's exactly why I wanted to have you on. This is a, this is amazing. And the album is like a reflection of that, right? Like it's all these, like a lot of them are very like PCA, very Presbyterian kind of hymns. Um, but they mean something different when it comes from a woman, a queer woman of color than, you know, the straight white man when he says it. So um, I found I found a lot of these promises to be true. And I think that the most revolutionary thing is that they are true for someone like me. Right. Yeah. And that's a testament to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, when the when the when in the early days of the church, they they, they said Christianity is a is a religion of women and slaves, right? Because mm. it's the people lowest in the world who find that there's the most promise, <laughs> that that is a, a belief system worth believing in because it it tells you that you matter. Wow. Man. So. Wow. So that's what I think it is. Oh. <laughs> in a- Trump is I am defiantly reclaiming my faith from white straight men who have who have centered themselves in its telling, its preaching, its execution. And um, and I am taking the tools that they gave me and the promises they taught me and I'm claiming them for myself wow. as they taught me. That man, this this is amazing. <laughs> this is oh my gosh. Wow. I feel very strongly about these things. No, I, this is a beautiful thing. I am. No, this is great. I mean, I've just, I, I, I love that. I mean, I like the embodiment of what you're, 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 you're engaging. I mean, I think you're right. I mean, you know, being left out and in, and you know, just the language. I think that is, is used in Christian circles. That's, but you're still who you are, and like you said, you still have beliefs, and you still, you know, like you said, you can see it from both sides. That's. That's powerful. That's 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 good. That's a that's a mature faith right there. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, it's been ta- tried, tested, and it's true. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> that's all I have. It's. I mean, it, it was really all I've I've been left with, and it's all I have anymore. And I, you know, I 
have you had a chance to listen to the album all the way through? Not all the way through. I mean, the first, I think I got first through about, yes. The first couple tracks. Well, you know, I use, like, everything else I consider rubbish. Refuse. Hmm. You know, when compared to the inheritance and the glory that is in Christ Jesus. Um, and, you know, my life has sucked at a lot of different points, to be very frank. But... Um, actually when I came out to my mom, uh, like two years ago, she looked at me and she said, has this, we were like, it was also in Chinese. So this is a translation. Um, <laughs> are you like, have you had to like live through a lot of heartbreak? Has this been hard, like heartache? And I said, yes, it has. Um, but I wouldn't trade it because it's, because all that is part of who I am. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, like I, yeah. And that's. That's important to me. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, in my coming to terms with my sexuality, going through a whole racial, you know, um, identity revelation, it showed me what mattered and what didn't. And it showed me my own idolatry, showed me own, my own arrogance, my own pride, my presuppositions about the world. Um, you know, I used to think I was better than like non-Christians and gay people and all that kind of stuff. I used to think I knew better than them. And now I'm like, you know what? We really are just a bunch of beggars telling other beggars where there's bread. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I have learned so much from the LGBTQ, like the non-Christian LGBTQ community, right? Like I feel like they are the good Samaritans. I was beaten on the side of the road by my own community, by the church. They took me in, they fed me, they gave me a safe place to stay. Um, they took care of me when my own people would cross the other road, other side of the road and keep walking. And the people who I thought were my enemies were those who ended up saving my life. So. Man, 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 Sue Ann, this, this has been amazing. This has been, I'm, I'm, I'm just enthralled. I'm, I'm speechless. (laughs) Well, when's the book coming out? I mean, that's, I guess that's the question. Shoot. I've got like a list of book ideas, but it's obviously going to take a real long time to write all of them. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Shoot. <laughs> well, where can people find you, you know, so they can bring you out and, uh, you know, yeah. illuminate them as well? Oh, yeah. Um, I'm on Facebook. I got an official Facebook page. I've Twitter. I'm kind of addicted to Twitter in like a good and a bad way. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I'm gonna, I'm getting my website up right now. It'll be sueannshaw.com. Okay. It's not up yet, but uh, there's that. But, like, you know, all the social medias just message me. I'm very accessible. Uh, and then this album that we've been talking about comes out June 22nd um, to, like, all the digital retailers, iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Google, Amazon, whatever. You want to listen to it and it will be there. Um, and I hope that, you know, these are kind of like the whole idea is like, these are the songs that got me through yeah a really hard time. And mm-hmm. I know that that's what people need right now too, is to turn their eyes upon Jesus. You know, that's one of the songs and look full in his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And when you have nothing else in the world, when everything has been taken away from you, that is the one thing no one can ever take away from you. Mm-hmm. 
It's Jesus mm-hmm. because because they don't own him. They don't own Christianity. They don't own the gospel. They want to act like they do, but they don't. They're just people just like us who are in need of a great savior. And, um, and I, you know, there's a song the give me Jesus in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Hmm. You can have it all. You can have the earthly powers. You can have all of that, but you cannot take away my inheritance because that is in Jesus. Yeah. And that's all I'll need to get through. Yes. To get through. So that's dope. That that's the is, thing that makes me most angry about the last few years is how Jesus's name has been dragged through the mud on this. Absolutely, <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. And I love what you just said. It's like, they, you know, they want to act like they own Christianity, but, you know, but they don't. And, um, you know, and that's in, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, for me, it, it's, it's it's in um, commentaries. It's in, you know, those dictionaries that we've all bought. I mean, so it's like, you know, it's expanding the mind beyond those things. And asking, you know, like you said, they can't take Jesus, you know, and like you said, that search is, is, is powerful, that, that, that journey. And then eunuch, you know, Ethiopian eunuch says, is, is there any reason why I should not be baptized? Because the whole world says there's a million reasons why you cannot enter the kingdom of God. But the eunuch is reading the scriptures for himself and he's asking questions. He says, is there actually a reason that I cannot be baptized? Yeah. And Philip has to say, no, there isn't a reason that you can, that you can't, that you like, we're going to do, we're going to baptize you right now. <laughs> right. Man, man, you got a, um, <laughs> you need a, you need a classroom now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue Ann, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking time uh, to just, man, this was, this was deep. This was heavy. You, you laid it on us. Hopefully not too uh, heavy that it is dry. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Uh, this is this is this is powerful stuff. So thanks again. Thank you for having me on and letting me ramble for a really long time. <laughs> <laughs> nah, you were good. You were great. Soul, then know thy full salvation. Rise or sin and fear and care. Joy to find in every station. Something still to do or bear. Think what spirit dwells within thee. Think what father's smiles are thine. Think that Jesus died to win thee. Child of heaven, canst thou repine?
rushing wind that are so strong Ye clouds that sail in heaven above 